My name is Eric Reese. This is Out of the Crisis. Why are we still not ready? Right at this very moment, a second wave of the pandemic is brewing, and we are repeating the same mistakes. If we don't learn the lessons of the pandemic, hundreds of thousands will die. We are still casting about for blame and looking backwards, as if this is over. But we have to learn from our mistakes to prevent an unimaginable tragedy. I don't believe this is as straightforward as saying if only we had stopped traveling sooner or if we had more Purell on hand, we would have been better off. Why weren't we ready? Why are we still not ready? These seem like complicated questions to answer, but it is not impossible. There is a science to this. Dr. Robert Schooley is a genuine expert. He has seen this before. He started his career on the front lines of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Since, he has dedicated his life to infectious disease research, despite seeing the decline of funding infrastructure and national attention to this area of medicine. Now, he is on the leading edge of infectious disease research at the University of California, San Diego, and has been a leader in the civic response to the pandemic. Dr. Schooley is a rare person who understands deeply the many ways we could have been better prepared to fight COVID and the consequences of our inaction. In our conversation, he detailed the many, many mistakes we made along the way, and most critically, how we can avoid them next time. Because this is not over. Dr. Schooley is now leading the charge for the Herculean effort it will take to reopen the UCSD campus. If it works, it will be one of the most comprehensive testing programs in the country. It will require frequent and convenient testing for all students and faculty, tens of thousands of people. It will have huge implications for the rest of us, helping us understand what will be required to reopen and to live in the new normal. However, the part of the conversation that will stick with me the longest, I think, was when I asked him of the more than 100,000 deaths we have seen in the pandemic so far, how many were preventable? His answer, pretty much all of them. Here's my conversation with Dr. Robert Schooley. I'm Robert Turner Schooley, professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego. I'm a virologist and a member of the Infectious Disease Division here at UC San Diego uh, and have been involved in uh, uh, viral research, particularly RNA viruses, uh, since HIV came along in the 80s uh, and uh, have gotten increasingly involved in our response to the coronavirus. Well, Dr. Schooley, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I know this must be a very hectic and, uh, and busy time at the university. Uh, first of all, how, how have you been doing? How, how, how are your colleagues holding up in these difficult times? How's your family? What, what's the, the quarantine and the crisis been like for you? Well, the family is doing fine. They're all uh, home, as much, many of us are, trying to work from home and keep things going. Um, university is... Uh, right now on kind of a summer quasi hiatus. I think what people don't realize sometimes about research universities is that um, we never really shut down because we have a research effort that goes on year round. Of course. Uh, Our students are here for three quarters of the year and the outbreak um, for the most part truncated uh, the last part of our uh, last quarter and uh, the summer is usually quieter. So the university is kind of quiet like it normally is in the summer as far as the students are concerned, but this summer has been a bit different because 
much of the research effort has been shut down. And uh, except for those of us who've been doing uh, research on um, coronavirus, uh, the um, the campus has been really pretty quiet. Uh, the hospitals have been busy. Uh, we continue to see quite a few cases here in San Diego County. Uh, our biggest um, cluster of cases comes from uh, the south part of the county near the border with Mexico. Uh, we have a large number of Americans, um, American citizens, American green card holders who have gotten sick in Mexico and are coming back to the U.S. for care. Uh, and that's causing a, a bit of a, of a challenge for the hospitals in the southern part of the county and for our hospital in the center part of San Diego with uh, quite a few new cases every day. We see about 160 new cases in San Diego County daily, and uh, we're not that large a county. So from your perspective, just looking at the big picture, where are we in this crisis? Well, until about three weeks ago, I was hoping that we were beginning to see uh, the end of the tunnel. Uh, the the um, overall um, number of new cases in the U.S. had been decreasing. We were uh, beginning to see some parts of the country where the virus had been totally out of control in the early part of March uh, to early April, New York, New Jersey, uh, beginning to really uh, see their epidemic um, uh, in the rearview mirror. And things are still looking reasonably good there. But what's happened since then is the epidemic has um, taken off in other parts of the country, uh, both in parts of the country where it's just beginning to get its foothold in the Midwest, but more so uh, in the Southeast and the Southwest where uh, as the um, people went back to work, they didn't uh, understand that going back to work also means going back to work uh, and realizing there's still a virus out there and wearing masks in public and uh, being careful about socializing. And uh, what's happening now is in some states, uh, we're seeing the kinds of expansions of uh, new cases that we saw in the early part of March. And we've had over the course of the last two weeks, of, of course, a uh, uh, lot of, um, of activity uh, around um, the uh, demonstrations and uh, and all around the country uh, where we've had large numbers of people out, many with and without masks, uh, a lot of uh, yelling, a lot of pepper spray, and uh, we haven't yet begun to see what impact that might be having on the outbreak. What we're seeing the last couple of weeks is what happened over Memorial Day weekend, and uh, I'm really concerned that uh, we're headed into a new wave of infection that uh, um, is going to be just as bad as the first wave. We've had 110,000 deaths now. And by the end of the summer, we could be have a total of 200,000 deaths if the current trends continue. I've also heard some reports that the way that uh, police and authorities have responded to the protests using tear gas, pepper spray, um, locking people up in confined spaces uh, in the name of riot control, those seem like just the perfect conditions to maximize viral transmission. Yeah, I think those. I, I think that's absolutely on the money. There's no better way to do that than to uh, confine people in small places with no personal protective devices, uh, with them co coughing and sputtering from uh, pepper spray and tear gas. Uh, so uh, the response to the uh, to these demonstrations has certainly not helped us with epidemiology, among other things. I really wanted to speak with you because you know this is not your first 
epidemic that you have uh, lived through and led the charge in helping to um, understand and reverse. Talk a little bit about your your career and how you how you got into infectious disease research, why that was interesting to you, and if you don't mind, maybe uh, say a little bit about your work uh, with HIV and and some of the earlier uh, research that you led for prior epidemics. Well, I got into infectious diseases as a medical student because I found the um, combination of the diseases we dealt with um, being ones that we for the most part, had antibiotics for. In those days, we focused mainly on bacterial infections. And when patients came in, we could make a diagnosis and do something for them. They got better quickly, uh, most of the time. Uh, and uh, and we really could do a lot for them. It was also it is, uh, a cluster of diseases that disproportionately affected uh, people at the um, other end of the economic spectrum. And uh, we were I was training in East Baltimore at the time, and most of my patients were inner city uh, members of the Baltimore community, and I uh, felt that uh, since most of their disease burden, a lot of their disease burden was uh, infectious disease related, uh, getting involved in that area of medicine was really quite exciting um, and very rewarding seeing people uh, able being able to um, respond to the drugs that we had at the time. Uh, I went to the National Institutes of Health for my infectious disease fellowship, thinking that I would continue to work on bacterial disease. When I got there, uh, there were very few people working on bacterial disease. Almost all of the work at NIH in the section I went to focused on immunology. Um, but there was one guy who was working on virology named Ray Dolan, who had just come back to the NIH uh, from his fellowship in Boston and um, was setting up a virology lab. At the time, virology was not thought to be very interesting because uh, we didn't have good ways to diagnose specific viral infections except antibody responses, and those don't happen until somebody's either better or has died, um, and we had no drugs for them. And the um, party line with antiviral drugs was that we wouldn't have any because viruses used the machinery of the cell to replicate, and there was no way to separate them from their the cells in which they grew to have therapeutic agents, drugs, that would work. and. Um, as I began to go into the lab and work on the immunology of Epstein-Barr virus, the virus that, worked, that caused infectious mononucleosis, working with Ray Dolan and Tony Fauci at the time was really quite young, um, I got interested in some of the new antiviral drugs that were just beginning to come along to treat uh, some of the herpes virus infections, herpes zoster, herpes encephalitis, herpes simplex encephalitis, uh, herpes um, neonatorum, herpes simplex can be a devastating disease in children. Uh, mm-hmm. And the paradigm uh, shift occurred that uh, began to occur that uh, many people didn't think would happen, that we actually could uh, separate the pathogen from the target uh, with, with drugs for viral diseases. And uh, uh, so I got quite interested in a combination of viral immunology and, uh, and uh, viral therapeutics. Uh, after finishing my three years at the NIH, I went to Boston and worked at the, Net, the Massachusetts General Hospital as a fellow. And that was during the early days of HIV. Yep. I arrived uh, in 1979, and the week I finished my fellowship was the week that uh, HIV appeared in MMWR. And um, initially, it was um, a disease that um, was thought to be rare, uh, was going to be seen mainly in New York and San Francisco. Um, and... Um, uh, I remember the first grant that uh, I wrote about it, the 
scientific critique was it's a very interesting grant, scientifically compelling, but uh, we don't believe we can fund it because there will never be enough diseases in Boston to study, uh, not enough people with a disease in Boston to study. Wow. So I think for a long time, uh, for the first year or so, um, people really thought that uh, this was going to be a very rare disease that uh, was interesting immunologically, but would not have much societal impact. I got very interested in it because uh, I had been working on some of the immune modulatory changes that herpes viruses had in transplant recipients. And one thing that happened was patients who had been received uh, kidney transplants or lung transplants or, or um, liver transplants, if they got severe herpes virus infections, their CD4 cells went down and CD8 cells went up. The ability to measure CD4 and 8 cells was really just happening. And the transplant group that I was working with was one of the first to do that. Uh, they were interested in whether or not it, these changes were seen with uh, rejection of the kidney of the organ. Uh, I became interested in whether or not these had anything to do with viral infections. We found that whenever anybody got one of these herpes virus infections, they had their T cells, uh, we call them invert, um, the so-called helper cells decreased, the suppressor cells went up, as we called them in those days. And when HIV came along, we didn't know what caused the disease at the time, we didn't know about HIV, but with AIDS, we saw the same immunologic changes. Uh, and uh, as these helper cells went away, people got the same kinds of infections. I've been seeing in the transplant patients that I was uh, seeing in the, in the hospital as a, as a consultant. And so it was a fairly easy um, scientific shift into this new disease, which began to be much more pressing and to be much more, um, uh, uh, it was much more clear that it was not going to be a, a limited problem. I also became fascinated by the patient population. I'd grown up in Alabama and uh, had really uh, uh, very little insight into um, the um, the, the, the uh, MSM population. And if you'd asked me growing up in Alabama about uh, how many uh, uh, members of the MSM community there were in Alabama, I'd say, oh, there must be at least a hundred, I don't know. Uh, but when AIDS came along, what it did was it forced a whole community that had been working all along beside us and kind of suppressed uh, because of the stigma um, and uh, in those days of, of uh, being in that population that uh, this disease forced them out of the closet and onto the into the hospitals. And uh, they encountered the same things in the hospitals that they did in life. Uh, there were doctors who didn't want to take care of them uh, for a while. We didn't have anything we could do for them specifically um, beyond trying to treat their infections. Young people my age were dying. The average uh, survival, if you came in with pneumocystis at the time, was six months. And uh, I'd been used to infectious diseases uh, as a, uh, in my younger career, as a, especially in which we had drugs we could treat people with and who got better quickly. And uh, so with AIDS, um, it was a very different story. And uh, having had the experience with antiviral drugs with herpes viruses, when the first drugs that came along for uh, HIV to be studied uh, became available. I got involved in the early antiretroviral trials um, with AZT and drugs after that and began to see the pendulum swing from uh, people always dying to people beginning to do a bit better. And um, at the same time, my lab was working on the immune modulatory changes that the virus HIV was causing. And I began to develop assays to look at killer T cells in the lab uh, 
developed, directed at HIV. At that time, the party line was that these did not exist because people weren't look at him, looking at them in the right way. <laughs> and a fellow at the time in my lab, Bruce Walker, uh, developed a very nice assay that um, very clearly uh, demonstrated that these, these uh, cells were both widely present in HIV, present um, in this chronic infection probably more than any other viral infection discovered at the time. And they played a major role in controlling viral replication in people who were infected and kept people healthy for uh, the prolonged period of time uh, before the, the virus ultimately overcame their immune response. Uh, this became a focus of vaccine research and uh, I was kind of working in both areas simultaneously in the late 1980s and um, began to see progress with drugs and realized even though the party line was there's going to be a vaccine just around the corner, that there were so many complexities with HIV vaccine development that it was going to be years before that came along, and I decided that I would focus more on drugs and um, got involved first with developing individual drugs and then later with working with the National Institutes of Health and its AIDS clinical trials group as we developed the um, principles for antiretroviral therapy. Uh, I ran the group from 1995 through 2002, which was an incredibly exciting period of time during which time the so-called cocktail was developed, and we realized that this disease could be one that uh, was no longer fatal, in fact, that uh, people would live with for years and years and go back to doing what they would have done had this disease not come along. Uh, as we began to get control of the disease in the U.S., I became interested in, rather than continuing to study the nuances of antiviral drugs, trying to figure out how to get them to other places. And uh, uh, I and my uh, vice chair of this group at the time, Constance Benson, um, uh, who became chair of the group uh, after me, uh, worked with the NIH to develop the first uh, therapeutic research centers uh, in Africa and Latin America and Asia. Uh, these research centers run by local people um, began to provide antiretroviral therapy in places where it was needed most and changed the way the NIH did research in those areas. Um, instead of having U.S. universities hire people to do the studies, uh, the ACTG gave the grants to African investigators and South Latin American investigators who ran the studies, ran their units, and became part of the scientific community that uh, began to solve uh, this uh, disease in those parts of the world as well. So uh, HIV is now a disease that uh, we still have a ways to go. Uh, we still don't have that vaccine, but we do have drugs uh, that can, cause, that can uh, cause people who are able to get access to them and take them have a life expectancy not that different uh, from people without the disease. Uh, we have been able to use the drugs in ways that uh, we can prevent people from becoming infected, just like a vaccine would. They're now long-acting drugs that uh, we learned last month can be injected and uh, work for several, uh, several months and prevent infection during that period of time, very much again like a vaccine would. So with uh, HIV, uh, we've done with drugs what uh, people would have liked to have done with vaccines and still have not been able to accomplish. And it's been quite a bit of, uh, it's been very gratifying to see that disease go from where it was uh, in 1981 to where it is now. It's a remarkable turnaround. And I mean, it's, it's uh, really appreciate the work that you have invested in this over a career. As you tell the story, there's some overtones with what we're living through right now that, that strike me. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling the story of what you've seen 
with the COVID pandemic uh, through that lens. I mean, I, I pick up on when you're talking about the the neglect of the authorities and the powers that be not taking it seriously enough, not acting decisively when there might have been a chance to prevent transmission. Um, that certainly has some relevance to today. I, I think also about the universal belief that only a vaccine could solve the problem and that a vaccine is imminent, and uh, but the need for, for complementary uh, therapies and strategies. Um, that sure does sound uh, sound familiar. And, and, and just so you know, we've had some conversations in this series with folks working on um, repurposing existing drugs, uh, on uh, you know, building an mRNA vaccine, um, doing uh, drug discovery for possible therapeutics. So we've, we've been through the science of what's possible a little bit here and there. But I think you have a unique perspective and able to kind of help us understand the big picture of what's this been like from, from your experience, you know, having seen epidemics before, having had the experience of, of HIV, which of course is a, a much different and, and seems like more complex uh, uh, pathogen in the first place. But tell us, tell us about what, what the COVID pandemic has been like. What's what struck you as kind of typical of all epidemics and what's unique to this situation? You know, it's very much like deja vu all over again, as they say. I mean, this disease uh, was first noted in China, and initially people said, well, that's too bad, uh, big problem for China, uh, not going to happen here. And um, when uh, HIV was first described in New York and San Francisco, as I said earlier, the perception was this was just a problem for those cities. And uh, what we've seen is uh, this virus has spread around the world with uh, remarkable speed, helped both by its very rapid generation time, but also by this web of travel that uh, is unprecedented uh, and which was um, certainly uh, how HIV initially got out of its first toeholds into humans um, was as places where the virus had been circulating began to be places that interchanged the rest of the world. It found its way out. Uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 didn't need to wait. It was already on planes uh, long before we even knew the virus existed or the disease existed and was already circulating um, in places that were uh, unaware it was circulating, but uh, really um, feeling pretty smug and safe because it was a problem somewhere else. And mm -hmm. uh, we've seen repeatedly um, this uh, concept that if you just stop travel, uh, you can prevent the virus from getting here, and therefore we didn't need to worry about it. You may remember we tried to stop people coming into the U.S. who were HIV infected, uh, back in the uh, uh, in the uh, Reagan administration, and mm -hmm. that didn't turn out to, to work so well. Uh, we tried the same thing here, and when we did that, we then, rather than saying, and, but we also need to realize it might still get here, and in fact, it's probably already here, and look for it, we basically went to sleep and then waited until the virus was being transmitted within the population widely enough that uh, it was uh, virtually uh, impossible to catch up with uh, by the time people uh, began to acknowledge it as a problem. The only reason it became, it really came to our attention in the U.S. was it finally found its way into a nursing home in Washington State, where you had a cluster of people who were uh, susceptible enough uh, to disease as opposed to just infection and transmission to get infected in a rapid succession and people suddenly realized the virus had made it to the U.S. 
Um, we then turned around and said, well, um, we'll close the, we'll close the door to China and, uh, forgot we had a front door to Europe hmm. and then remembered that and then started this, uh, this idea that, uh, if we just close that door within 48 hours, we'd be safe. That led to probably the biggest influx of virus, uh, into the U S from the beginning when people who were infected, Americans who were infected, rushed to get on planes to get back before it was too late. And then sat in airports for hours. I still remember those images of the people waiting in the holding areas in the airports. Uh, that the, those days, I mean, after that, it just seemed like if you were like, once again trying to cook up the perfect vehicle for maximizing transmission. That's how you do it. I turned to my wife uh, sitting on the couch watching that that night and said, "Here it is. Um, this is uh, it. Couldn't have been better." And that, of course, uh, took several weeks to percolate through the Northeast and. Uh, then you had New York, and uh, that was all seeded uh, in part by that, but also by people been coming back and forth before then. But under the radar, the, the virus was spreading rapidly in the community and causing uh, what was likely mistaken by more people than not as flu uh, because it was the middle of flu season. And a lot of the people who were out and about uh, were young people and weren't getting um, uh, that ill. But it wasn't until it, it began to get into older populations uh, that the virus uh, began to overwhelm uh, the healthcare system and uh, and to uh, to take off uh, in our up and down our northeast corridor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're kind of um, reliving that uh, as we speak. We know that we were able to take the top off the peak uh, in uh, the country as a whole by. Uh, robbing the virus of a chance to be spread from person to person uh, by uh, doing, by working at home, by wearing masks when we're out, uh, by hand-washing, social distancing, decreasing the number of human contacts. And uh, we've got clear evidence that that worked. And we have uh, clear evidence from before we were doing that, what the virus was doing epidemiologically, it was exploding. Everyone who was infected was infecting three or four more people. And when we go back to what we were doing, uh, back to work, back to school, if we do it in the same way we were doing it in March, we'll have that same three to four person um, rate of spread and another explosion that we'll have to fight again to get control of with uh, hospitals worried about who's going to get the last respirator. And uh, we've already begun to see that happen in Montgomery, Alabama was nearly out of respirators 10 days ago. Uh, things are getting very tight in Arizona now and uh, Phoenix. Now, I think I just read that they are at like 75% ICU utilization exactly. already. Exactly. And uh, when you look at the epidemic curve in, in uh, Arizona, it's um, unbelievably steep. And these are of new cases. You've got the governor saying nonsense like, oh, we're testing more people. And that's letting us know we have more infection. We're going to get those tests out there. But what's being counted are cases, not uh, and and people in the hospital, hospitalizations. Those are things that happen whether or not you're testing. And what that's telling us is that this virus is having its way with Arizona. And right now there's no end in sight if this uh, current plan that they have uh, continues to be in place. So rewind the tape to the start of the pandemic you know, one of the recurring themes in these conversations is the need to have science-driven policy uh, and leaders who are fluent 
in the science of the kinds of um, challenges we're going to face in the 21st century. So what would a science-driven policy response to this have looked like if we could rewind the tape and do it over again? Well, the science-driven response would have been to looked at what happened in China uh, in uh, late December, early January, where it infected 80,000 people, and at least 80,000 people. That's the cases that were counted in a very rapid fashion. Now, you could argue we didn't know about that, but we actually did. We, uh, our intelligence agents knew about it, and we would have known more about it if we hadn't pulled uh, all the people that from the U.S. CDC who were working in China a year um, last June, up until last June, uh, we pulled all of them out uh, in a spat about uh, tariffs, and uh, we would have had real-time intelligence in addition to what the intelligence community was was saying, and we would have said, you know. That virus is highly transmissible. It moves. It moved across China in no time flat. And what we need to do is to be ready for it if it gets here. We need to have our hospitals ready. We need to make sure we have enough respirators. We need to have enough. We need to develop a test kit quickly. We need to figure out so we know who has it. And we need to use that test kit in ways that uh, the test kits we have, in ways that don't constrain us from finding the disease. The first community case of transmission occurred here in California, where a woman who hadn't traveled to China uh, became ill in a local hospital. The doctors taking care of her uh, said, this is not a usual pneumonia. She must have COVID and wanted to get her tested. Uh, when they asked to have her tested, the public health people, the CDC said, no, no, no. She hadn't been to China. She's not eligible for testing. We don't have enough kits. So she then was transferred to the University of California, Davis, where the doctors there said, this sure doesn't look like a regular pneumonia to me. This looks like uh, coronavirus. Uh, can we test her? And they took them another two to three days to be willing to test her then. And it was all because they'd set up this, this concept that it couldn't be coronavirus if you hadn't had contact with someone from Wuhan, China. And if we'd had widespread test kits available and had used them uh, in uh, uh, when people came in ill and had done community testing around the nursing home uh, outbreak, we would have known uh, that this virus was here and it would have redoubled our efforts to uh, to make sure that we had uh, the uh, masks and gowns and gloves we needed in the hospital. Uh, we would have uh, been uh, really much better prepared for this and we would have talked about it as a severe problem, a serious problem that we needed to do something about. We'd have recognized that China stopped it by having people go home for 10 days rather than uh, continuing to act like nothing was happening and waiting until uh, people who were watching what was happening in New York hospitals realized there was going to there were going to be tens of thousands of deaths, and that finally got people's attention. Uh, and uh, that was a missed opportunity uh, for us. Uh, it's not you know did the can you blame China? Can you blame the WHO? Yeah, there are things they could have done better. And I, there's evidence now that uh, this uh, virus may have been circulating in China in October, and uh, people either didn't recognize it or um, uh, the, the virus, uh, the, the disease wasn't acknowledged, uh, but uh, we knew about it in December and we didn't do a thing about it. The, um, uh, the Chinese uh, acknowledged it was present in December and uh, within a week, the sequence of the virus was, by early January, the sequence of the virus was already online. We could have started making test kits then. We didn't need to have the virus in hand to start developing an assay for it. And uh, when we started trying to make an assay, we should have said uh, to all the scientific uh, community in the U.S., uh, 
who want to try to develop an essay, please do, we need to have this. And instead we tried to control it and have the only place that could legally do it be the CDC and they managed not to get it done and to use the FDA to prevent research, they, uh, uh, researchers and university hospitals from developing an assay they could have used to turn the lights on about where this epidemic was at a time when uh, politicians were saying, not a problem, we don't see it. So we, we made a large number of mistakes early on and we still haven't um, uh, caught up with that. And unfortunately, we're watching some of those same mistakes be made again. It's heartbreaking to think that, you know, we're now talking about 100,000 deaths or, you know, saying the possibility of, of 200,000 by the end of the summer. I think it's almost too monstrous for us to process that those were preventable deaths. Is that, is that really true? Yeah, I think most of them were preventable. Uh, you know, the, um, by the time we recognized that, by the time things were kind of really rolling in China, the virus is probably already here. And we would have had some deaths, but we could have prevented most of them if we'd been prepared to deal with it um, in a more uh, aggressive way. If you look at the difference in what happened in epidemiology in New York and in California, it's very clear that had we acted a few weeks earlier, we would have prevented tens of thousands of deaths. Uh, in uh, New York and California did their shutdowns only three days apart. The difference was that in New York, they were having about 5,000 cases a day. And in California, the number of cases a day were less than, were around two to 400. And uh, it wasn't the number of cases that that was signifying. What was the, the difference was that those cases were just a, a, a very downstream indicator of all the virus that was already circulating in the community. And so New York's epidemic, although only the intervention was only three days later, was much more advanced than California's. And the places that this virus is getting now and the resurgence uh, are beginning to rival what was going on in, in New York uh, before the shutdown was put in place. And it takes a couple of weeks once you decide to do something definitive to begin to see uh, the peak occur and go over the other end. And uh, so I, I really do fear that by uh, ignoring what's happening, uh, we're going to give the virus another uh, run uh, at our population and uh, make it a lot harder to get back to, uh, to what we want to do. Um, it was a very, I thought, insightful uh, column by Paul Krugman in the Times earlier this week, uh, the marshmallow game, in which he talked about a game that you play with children in which you put a marshmallow in front of them on a plate and you say, if you wait 15 minutes and don't eat this, I'll give you another one. And you can have two marshmallows. And um, New Zealand was smart enough to wait for that second marshmallow by waiting until they got control of the epidemic to go back to work. Uh, we ate that marshmallow as fast as it was on the plate. And uh, I'm concerned that we are missing the chance to really get this virus under control where we can do uh, contact tracing and look for clusters of cases and get people quarantined when they are sick so they don't infect other people. We're missing that chance by just trying to titrate what we do in a way that the number of deaths is, uh, in quotes, acceptable. Uh, well, we're not going to get on top of the epidemic by doing that. And that's ultimately what we want to do. It's not just the peak of the curve, it's the area under the curve. Mm -hmm. We're allowing the area under the curve to uh, continue to um, 
to evolve by not being willing to uh, take advantage of what would have been a peak going down to uh, the other side of the peak and just stepping on the virus's neck so it can't um, come back and cause trouble. And we just, we haven't had the political will to do that. Uh, and that's, that's bad for us. Seems just heartbreaking to me, not just the, the calamity of the deaths and the botched initial response, but then the fact that the time that we all bought with our shared sacrifice of the shutdown and the shelter in place, that that time was squandered. I think that's, that's hard for people to accept. Oh, I think it's very hard for people to accept. And uh, the uh, counter narrative that you will hear is, see, we did all that and it didn't matter. Uh, <laughs> we did all that. People and, aren't very good with exponential math, yeah. Yeah, uh, they aren't very good with exponential math. And uh, the message is we did that and we know now that it works. We didn't do it long enough. And this talk about, well, it's behind us now and all that wasn't worth it or just hurt the economy uh, is uh, is reconstructed history that um, uh, is, is, really, is really destructive in terms of, of how to get this epidemic back under control. Yeah. So I know in, in epidemiological circles, in public health circles, there's been talk of this kind of pandemic for a long time. Uh, is it your view that a pandemic like this was inevitable? At some point, something like this was going to happen? Well, we've seen uh, two of them already. Uh, there was the initial SARS outbreak. We were able to get control of that. Um, we had two fortunate events with that one. The first is the biology of that virus is slightly different than this one. Um, this virus, um, although highly similar, has a unique feature that uh, KYUN and his colleagues at Hong Kong University figured out, and that is um, rather than stimulating the innate immune response, the first um, uh, arm in our uh, immune defense, this virus subverts that immune response and mm-hmm. uh, it grows in lung tissue about three and a half times as fast as the original SARS virus did. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a time when it silenced our innate immune response, the innate immune response is, in fact, how we know we're sick. That's where the interfer- what interferon is generated. Interferon is what makes us feel bad when we have the flu. So at the same time, the virus is replicating rapidly by being able to shut that immune response down. It's helping us stay at work and stay in class feeling fine. Uh, And the virus then spills over into our nose and throat on our vocal cords and uh, in titers that are higher than when you're actually sick and spreads uh, in people who don't have symptoms. Uh, That's accounts in my view for up to half the spread, maybe more. And the SARS, the first SARS outbreak didn't have that feature. So that if you isolated sick people, put them in the hospital and got to their contacts quickly, uh, you could stop the epidemic. And uh, luckily for uh, the world, that happened in a place uh, where people were willing to do that, China and Hong Kong. They put people in quarantine uh, who were contacts and they stopped the epidemic. Uh, the same thing happened with MERS, uh, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, 10 years later uh, that occurred initially in Saudi Arabia and spread to a little offshoot into Korea, but it was also stopped by uh, vigorous uh, isolation uh, and classical public health in places that still had public health um, priorities and had people uh, in health departments who could do contact tracing. We've let that all atrophy in the U.S. and didn't have that at our disposal. Uh, why, why do you think we've historically neglected these investments? 
Well, uh, we tend to uh, make investments in things that are in front of us. And um, we aren't good at preparing for things that we know will occur, but aren't there now. And uh, a lot of that is um, trying to, we have these short electoral cycles of two years at a time. And uh, politicians uh, don't really care what happens in five years. They care what happens in 18 to 24 months. And it's very hard for them to say we need to raise taxes or decrease um, uh, expenditures in this area to have a reserve of N95 masks because we might need those. It's very hard for them to say, um, well, right now we're not having an epidemic, but there's a good chance we will. So we need to have health departments have people who are trained and ready to go uh, to go out there and uh, find cases and stop them. So we. Uh, when something subsides in our rearview mirror, we then invest in something else. And that leaves us always having to catch up when that inevitable thing comes along. Uh, this is not going to be the last outbreak of uh, respiratory illness uh, that we see go around, go around the world. Uh, if we get control of this, vaccines, drugs, social distancing, uh, I hope we take uh, a... a um, careful stock of what we didn't have in place and what could have saved all these lives and made it a lot less devastating to uh, people and families and economies and say, if this comes back again, we are going to, when it comes, when it comes back again, we're going to be ready this time. Uh, that's the most important long-term lesson. I think that uh, uh, we as a global society uh, should take home. Um, the other global lesson to be learned is that, Viruses and, uh, and uh, infectious pathogens don't have maps uh, that have country borders on them. What they see is, is people they can infect. And um, we uh, are so heavily intertwined uh, as uh, a um, global population now uh, that uh, borders are not going to keep the viruses from spreading. Uh, when they come along and we should, as a global community, when we see a problem anywhere, all the rest of us should jump on it and help wherever that is, get control of it, because it will be to us later and it'll be much harder to control if it's allowed to continue to expand, evolve, diversify, uh, and, uh, uh, and deplete resources. So, uh, I hope in the future that instead of saying, boy, that's a problem China's having, we say, how can we help you control the virus? Do you need some PPE? Uh, and um, when we need help, uh, they'll say the same to us. Uh, we are all in this together. And if anything has shown us that, it's this virus. Um, uh, just like um, HIV showed us uh, 30 years ago. I think it's really interesting that so many of the lessons that we need to learn from this virus are not really about health or science or epidemiology, but rather about the values of our battered liberal democracy and our need, you know, the need for international cooperation, the need for empathy and compassion and truth telling uh, on the part of our leaders. And this really difficult thing to have the right people making the right long-term investments, even when the problem, as you say, is not right in front of our face. Well, I think it's the, the long-term investment issue is something that, um, that um, is true for politicians. It's also true for corporations um, and for 
universities and for societies, we uh, have lost sight of the fact that uh, we're only here for a short period of time on the planet. And uh, uh, if we can make changes that, that benefit people down the road just as much as they benefit us, uh, we're going to be a credit to our species. But if we keep doing things that are easy for us now and you have to pay for it later, um, we should really think hard about why we're here in the first place. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what kind of legacy do we want to leave behind? What kind of legacy do we want to leave behind? Uh, this is infectious disease legacy, uh, climate legacy, uh, mm-hmm. econ- uh, economic educational legacy. Those are all things that um, by investing in, in these um, areas more than we do and more sustainably than we do, um, we can make the world a, a exponentially better place than if we continue to try to just get by uh, by doing not quite enough damage for it to be cataclysmic, but not really thinking about how to solve a problem. Well, I'm glad that you included for-profit corporations in your list of institutions that need that way of thinking. You know, We've been talking a lot about this next generation of leaders and the obligations they have to face the challenges of the 21st century in a multi-stakeholder, long-term way. And this, this epidemic seems like it's just driven that home. Well, I think that, that's right. And I think what, what happens is, um, you know, I, I'm just a country doctor, but I understand shareholder value. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that has happened is um, we've changed the horizon for when shareholder value counts. It used to be you'd invest in a company uh, and, and watch it evolve over time and watch it develop products and watch it have an impact on society. And you would expect your, your return to be several years down the road. And now what people want is they want a clinical trial to start in 10 days, whether the drug is ready or not. And they want um, a new bit of software to be out there, whether it's ready to go or not. Uh, and uh, the longer term impact of those of, of not having stability both cause us to miss a lot of potential opportunities. Um, those used to always, uh, a lot of the most exciting fundamental research used to go on within companies. And now what happens is uh, the companies have kind of outsourced that to the biotech industry. And the biotech industry has in turn outsourced what they used to do to the venture capital uh, early uh, clusters of small people. And each higher layer then tries to gobble up something that looks like it might work. And if it doesn't work in the 10 months that people are going to give it, the idea gets cast away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and older um, paradigms in which you had a larger company that could look across platforms and, and see where one part of the company had technology that might help the other part of the company and where there was a little more patience because the CEO's bonus wasn't going to be calculated on the basis of what the stock price was on such and such a date, um, some of the things that would have been really good ideas actually came to fruition. And uh, um, the flip side of that is, of course, if you have too much of that and too many layers of, uh, of, um, of uh, control and um, caution, you end up stifling out um, innovation. And we need to find the happy medium point between those two uh, to uh, to be able to think longer term than than we have, and no one could argue that our current capital market structure uh, is optimized for that happy medium. Yep, and 
or way out of whack. Exactly. So, I, you know, I think uh, maybe this will give us a chance to reflect on that as well. Um, but, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, we don't learn from um, our mistakes um, and our successes. Uh, we're uh, missing great opportunities. Well, and when I think about the memorial that we will have to build to the preventable deaths that have happened as a result of the pandemic, uh, all I can think about is we just, it would be a disgrace to to let their sacrifice be in vain. And so if we don't take this opportunity, if we don't learn those lessons, then, you know, shame on all of us. I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. Talk a little bit, maybe on a, more, on a more positive note, talk a little bit about what the response has been like in San Diego and at UCSD uh, and the steps that, that you've taken. And and as I understand, you're you're also involved in the plan to potentially reopen the campus once you have sufficient testing. Uh, talk a little bit about what that's been like on the ground. Well, we think universities are important, obviously. That's why we're here. And um, we um, uh, have done the best we could in this last quarter trying to teach our students at home. Um, I think the faculty have to give them credit. They, within about a 10-day period of time, went from all face-to-face teaching to teaching remotely and uh, delivered a remarkable quarter. But what we don't have when you don't have people to go, you don't have people interacting with their peers. You don't have (coughs) students uh, engaged actively in research with their professors and learning how to inquire and uh, learning how to question each other. You don't have a research enterprise acting at full potential. And so for us, we think it's very important to to be able to um, have our uh, community back together in the fall. But we don't want to have come back together uh, in a way that we're putting people at risk. So we've tried to put in place three uh, major components. Uh, one is to um, uh, uh, risk mitigation, which is to try to make it difficult for the virus to be spread from one person to the other. And by that, I mean thinking about classroom size, dormitory density, masking, uh, anything we can put on the tennis court, uh, any any folding chair to make it hard for the virus to get from one place to the other we want to do. So uh, we've, we've uh, gotten a, pla- a place in plan using mathematical modeling. I have a brilliant partner named uh, Natasha Martin who does infectious disease modeling. And she's modeled the um, impact of um, larger class size, uh, smaller class sizes, double dorm rooms, single rooms, those sorts of things to understand how we can most safely operate. Um, we then put in place, in addition to our risk mitigation component, a uh, component of viral surveillance. And uh, that includes wanting to make sure we know everything we can about anybody who is sick so that we can get them taken care of medically and get them isolated from others. We want to be able to look for virus <coughs> actively uh, with uh, viral shedding and uh, uh, monitoring. We've, we've, um, uh, Natasha has done a calculation of how many people we would have to uh, monitor every month with viral shedding tools to be able to have a 90% chance of knowing when we have a cluster of less than 10 cases on campus. Uh, so we could really intervene with uh, uh, isolation and quarantine. And it turns out that if we were able to uh, do a nasal swab on or an oral swab on everybody on campus once a month, and that by that I mean faculty and staff and students, uh, we would achieve that, that goal. And so we've developed a testing plan that 
will do that. Uh, to do that, we knew that we couldn't have it done in the hospital because what that would mean, you'd, 60,000 people every month would have to traipse over to the hospital and wait for an hour to be called up to be given a lab slip and another hour to wait for somebody to take the sample and blow two hours out of your day and nobody would do that. Um, so we developed a testing format in which we're gonna, we have test boxes kind of all around the campus that have a swab and some transport medium in it. And um, swab has a QR code on it. Uh, people have a an app that uh, can read the QR code and assign that swab to their medical record number. Uh, so all you have to do is go back, pick up a swab, point the app at it, stick the swab in your nose, or your mouth, and then throw the swab in a box and go on about your work, uh, just like you brushed your teeth. And then we pick them up every few hours and run at the hospital lab. Anybody who's got virus uh, being shed is then notified, and uh, we make sure they get the health care they need and also find out who they might have been in contact with and uh, look to see if uh, they also need to be tested. And we have rooms set aside for students uh, where they can have a private bathroom, private uh, bedroom. Meals are brought to them while they're infectious so that we can use the third component of this, which is kind of isolation and contact tracing to prevent uh, ongoing spread of the virus. And so that kind of three component um, activity is how we're modeling how we want to operate the campus in the fall. And we hope that we're going to be able to do that. A lot of it's going to depend on what happens with the epidemic over the next uh, uh, couple of months. But if we're at a place where we were at the end of May, then I think we can do this and uh, and keep everybody safe and have the university function in close to the way that it should be functioning with uh, people doing community service and working uh, on research projects and teaching and uh, an integrated, uh, highly efficient way. If this plan succeeds as you hope, could it be a model for how we could reopen other institutions in society? Well, under other institutions and also um, uh, society as a whole, uh, we're trying to find simple ways to monitor viral activity. We're, uh, I also did mention we're going to be looking for virus and wastewater. Uh, in dormitories and things to identify where virus is circulating. So all of this about controlling coronavirus is knowing where the virus is. And uh, to kind of use the Wayne Gretzky model about what made him the greatest hockey player, uh, he said, it's because I don't skate to where the puck is, I skate to where it's going to be. And if you can track where the virus has been moving, you can project where it's going to be and you can put your resources uh, in play to stop that. And that's what we need to be doing in society. We need to be able to do that with uh, much more widespread testing in public. We need to do that with uh, ways for people who are infected to be protected from their families and others. We need to have a public health effort that helps us identify people who are infected and get them out of harm's way. And we need a, we need a very effective um, um, hospital system to be able to take care of people efficiently. And in the meantime, we need to be investing vigorously in, in drug and vaccine development. One of the things that strikes me about the UCSD plan is it's very well thought out. There's a lot of components that the people who are involved in the community would have to know about. You have the testing boxes, you have the app, the QR code, the lab capacity, the contact tracing. Like It's an integrated plan. It has a coherence to it. And so if someone is not at UCSD, if they're you know working in a corporation or, or in any kind of situation where they're being asked to go back to work, 
if they're not seeing those signs of preparation around them, would you say that it's not safe? They should demand more from their place of work? Well, I think the, um, you know, if you said, what's the one thing that matters the most, like the thing that matters the most right now is masking. And I think that it's critical for people who are back at work uh, to be wearing masks everywhere they go. I think right now we should have companies think carefully about how many people they bring back to work at one time. We're doing that here, not bring everybody back at once to do research, for example. Mm-hmm. I think uh, thinking about issues like um, having sanitary wipes and um, having um, uh, thoughtful um, approaches to how we interact socially, like at coffee stands and um, and cafeterias and workplaces, we need to rethink that for now. And if companies aren't doing that, then you need to talk to the people in the company about uh, the only way your company is going to be able to continue to function is for us, your workers, to be uh, functional. And that's not going to happen if we don't work together to stop this virus. The lack of seriousness on the part of people who are rushing to reopen, I just find totally shocking. You know, And not just you know federal leaders, but, but local leaders uh, in some places, governors in some places, and, and corporate leaders in some places. When I was talking to um, this company called Curative, which is an LA-based um, uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 testing company, they had built this, uh, and they basically took over a clear lab and uh, built out this testing capacity to, to do hundreds of thousands of tests. And they, they're powering the drive-through testing in Los Angeles and in a number of cities around the country. The thing that just scandalized me, and I just wonder if this is uh, consistent with your experience as well. I, I, and I think many of us in the public just assume that the reason there's still, even today, insufficient testing of the virus is simply that we don't have the test. There's not enough testing capacity or the labs aren't ready or the tests aren't ready. There's been a lot of disinformation about that. But what they said to me is they have hundreds of thousands of tests ready to go. They could be setting up um, drive-through testing in any city in America. And the limiting step, the, the one thing they really need is more contacts with more mayors to set it up. And the idea that it's a lack of political will, not some kind of technical limitation that's preventing us from doing the testing that would be needed to control the virus and reopen safely, I, I find it almost unbelievable. Well, you know, I think um, a lot of places the mayors don't, it's the, in our, in our city, for example, the mayor doesn't have any uh, health component. It's all the county health department. Mm-hmm. And they're so busy trying to figure out why they don't have the personnel to do what they need to do it's been very hard for them to set up testing. Uh, they work for a board of supervisors that um, hasn't planned uh, that well for this. And um, uh, and um, that kind of strategic thinking is hard for them to get to. The other thing that we also need to do is think about the cost of these tests. They don't cost $100 a piece. Uh, that's what is charged to do them. Uh, but we've allowed... Um, some of the large testing companies to get that price because they essentially blackmailed the Trump administration into that. When the Trump administration needed to show they were doing more testing, they threatened to say, ah, we're not going to do testing at all. Then if you don't give us that price. And uh, we need to find a way to move this from a medical platform in which you make a large profit on a small number of tests to a commodity platform where you get the same quality test, but done at a high volume. You can end up... uh, having a much bigger impact on health and society and still make money uh, 
if you move to that. But if we have a price, if a test cost is $100 a test, it's going to be very hard to use those tests to control the virus in the, uh, in the community. Given what you know about the reagents involved and the logistics of actually doing the testing, what, what could it cost? You know, right now, the uh, real cost is probably somewhere around $35 to $40 um, by the time you pay for reagents that, uh, as they're kind of provided by commercial vendors. But the real cost could be as low as $10 or less uh, if um, people take it to scale, do, uh, do pooling, use some of the more innovative technologies. Uh, and that ought to be, you know, where we go with this. Uh, we uh, can't have it both ways, which is to try to maintain these high, high uh, profit margins and at the same time move it out uh, to make it available to the millions of people that need to have it available to really understand in society what we're doing. Um, you know, when you think about uh, companies who want to go back to work, uh, by being held hostage by the companies that are keeping the prices of these tests so high, we're essentially letting capitalism kill capitalism um, by not coming up with a way as a society to figure out how to commoditize these tests and have them become a public health tool uh, and uh, and really liberate us to go back to work. Uh, I've been thinking about the the saying hindsight is twenty twenty it it being twenty twenty and all, but if you think about trying to take advantage of all the hindsight now that we have, so everything that we've seen and learned, all the mistakes that we made, all the lessons we should have learned from those mistakes, um, what do we need to do right now going forward differently to beat the virus and to reopen our economy? Well, we need to, first of all, um, separate the um, politics from the science. Science says that we can do a lot of things right now that we weren't doing in April safely if we wear masks and pay attention to distancing and density and all of that stuff. And we shouldn't have wearing a mask be a, a signal of where you stand politically. In fact, if I were trying to open the country and put this behind me, the first thing I would do and every time I go to the microphone is I'd be there with a mask on and say, it's important you wear this so we can get on with our business. Uh, because it's we know what's going to happen when people go out without masks and, and do what was going on in March and April. So the first thing we need to do is, is to be able to come to agreement that we know what has stopped the virus so far. We know we can do it again, but people have to do it and stop making it into some sort of litmus test about where you stand politically about how you feel about masks. Um, we need to um, have um, uh, people who might be sick um, have no in disincentive uh, to telling their um, uh, their boss or their, uh, their um, workplace that they're sick and be sent home with pay so that they're out of the workplace for the 10 days they need to be out of the workplace. Because having them there coughing and, and with a fever and working because they're afraid they're gonna lose pay or be fired if they're found to be infected um, is a sure way to keep the virus going. So we need to remove any disincentive to people being tested and to uh, being able to stay home if you're, if you're infected. But we need to make it easier for people who are infected uh, to stay home. Uh, Make sure they have ways to get food. Make sure that uh, 
if they're with older people, they get away from those older people. Uh, put your grandmother up in a hotel with a lot of the outbreaks in the, uh, or go to a hotel yourself. A lot of the outbreaks that have occurred in um, China and Europe and other places are, are within families. So when you know you have a family member who's infected, don't repeat that over and over again with everybody in the family. Uh, and certainly not if you have someone who's highly vulnerable to this virus, uh, people who are older and obese and COPD, people with asthma, renal failure, cardiovascular disease, get them out of the way uh, when you know the virus is around. Um, and um, the um, uh, be patient in terms of um, trying to get back to large events. Um, the uh, We've seen the Memorial Day weekend price we paid. Um, let's not be that place next Memorial Day weekend. Let's have this can look at New Zealand, look where it is now. They can have Memorial Day weekend next week, next year. The, the, the last reported case, uh, as I recall, has been, uh, is, is done. New Zealand yeah. is, is coronavirus free, right? Right. And we're a more complex society, but there's no reason not to set that as our goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we know what we have to do to do it, and we just need to have the will to do it. I feet. feel like I'd be remiss to have you on and not ask you about phage therapy. Do you mind? Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, you just uh, explain a little bit about about what that uh, that's a big part of your research today. Just explain a little bit about phage therapy. Well, we in addition to uh, dealing with coronavirus, uh, we're dealing with kind of a global explosion of bacterial infections that are resistant to uh, most antibiotics, if not all of them that we have. And a lot of it's because we've used antibiotics for a long time for good purposes. We also use them to fatten up uh, chickens and. Uh, Bacteria uh, on the planet uh, are Darwinian. They see these antibiotics and they evolve to be able to grow in their presence, develop resistance. And so we're running out of drugs to treat these more severe infections. Um, Pharma is working on new drugs, but their pipeline isn't uh, keeping up with the evolution of uh, the microbiome of the planet. Uh, Probably the most efficient pharma that's been around for 300 million years is the bacteriophage industry. Uh, Bacteriophages are viruses that live within bacteria, prey on them, kill them, and go on to kill the the same bacterium next to them. They are literally eaters of bacteria. And uh, they've been co-evolving with uh, bacteria for 300 million years. Uh, We now know how to isolate them um, from the environment to purify them and to use them therapeutically in people who have some of these multi-drug resistant bacterial infections um, when we don't have antibiotics to use. And uh, I think that um, as we develop technologically more efficient ways to do this, we will open new uh, 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 new avenues of uh, infectious disease therapeutics that may uh, help us with this MDR uh, pandemic that we're having. The other thing that these bacteriophages can do is they can break through biofilms. Biofilms are films that form on foreign bodies when bacteria grow on them. And it's one of the reasons why it's very hard to sterilize, say, a prosthetic knee or a prosthetic hip if it happens to get infected or a pacemaker. Bacteriophages can break through those biofilms. And when used with antibiotics, we think that some of these infections that have to be treated by removing the joint or removing the pacemaker, 
we may be able to treat with antibiotics and bacteriophage without having to uh, remove the prosthesis, which would be a, a major advance and we think would be very helpful. So there's a lot of things that I think uh, are on tap that we should uh, uh, think about uh, with bacteriophage research going forward. Um, we've had to back off on some of that in the last couple of months because of the COVID outbreak, but the um, uh, antibiotic resistance challenge hasn't gone away. And uh, uh, I think this is one of the more hopeful ways to, um, to get to get back to business and dealing with these uh, multidrug-resistant bacterial pathogens. In thinking about the through line of many of the things that you've said, going back to your interest in neglected populations, in uh, the public and governmental response to HIV and the lessons that we could learn from that, obviously your work on the pandemic itself and preparing our economy to reopen when we can do it safely, and this recurring theme of needing to make the investments that lay the foundation for future prosperity, future progress. What do you really hope will be the lessons that we learn from this in the biggest picture? Of course, we're going to learn, we've all learned the lesson of of funding infectious disease research, which we neglected before. I hope we all learn the lesson of science-driven policy and frankly, simple things like washing hands and wearing masks, that that's, uh, that's pretty important. But if you think about the structural changes to our society, our civic culture, the way that we as the public engage with these issues, what do you what do you hope will change as we emerge into the new normal? You know, when we think about um, who we're kind of wired to care most about as uh, humans, um, we care about our spouses uh, and we care about our children. And I think if we think that uh, about everyone on the planet as being in one of those two categories and what you would want to leave them uh, uh, as your legacy, uh, it helps us make decisions that are, uh, sounder, uh, in terms of, um, of greater good for more people over a longer period of time. And, uh, I wouldn't want to have, uh, my children be worried about going out of the house and having someone stop them because of a broken taillight and end up uh, in jail about it. Um, I wouldn't want to have my children, uh, get, um, uh, tuberculosis and, uh, not have someone in the public health, uh, department be able to contact people that my child had been to school with and prevent them from having the same problem. Uh, what would you want for your, for the people that matter to you most and think about that as we make policy for what affects everybody else in the world. Because uh, every decision we make in varying degrees has an impact on more than just us. And uh, I think if we can recast how we think uh, to include that, obviously we're going to continue to have individualism. I like things that feel good too, but not have that be the the short-term, the, the short-term uh, satisfactions of things that feel good for a short while, be what dominate our thinking uh, in as as individuals, as corporations, as educational institutions, um, and and think about the longer frame of history. We always like to end these conversations uh, with the same question: simply, where do we go from here? How do we get out of the crisis? 
Well, I think we have a roadmap. We just have to have the patience to follow it. Uh, we need to look at states that are having explosions and send people home uh, until the uh, virus spread is quelled. And if they go home and stay home more uh, more vigorously than we did in the last couple of months, China didn't stay home for weeks. They stayed, you know, for months. They stayed home for two weeks, period. And that's because everybody stayed home. And if we could do that uh, in a really definitive way in these places where the virus is exploding and kind of reset the clock and then start back uh, being mindful of what we know about how to stop transmission, uh, we may be out of this, uh, at least the acute crisis, and be able to operate our institutions and our companies and our economy in a way that is sustainable and work back toward being able to do what we were doing a year ago uh, by uh, working on vaccines and drugs uh, that will allow us to do that and uh, realize that um, you know humanity's been through these infectious crises before uh, with uh, plague and smallpox and uh, and uh, influenza uh, at times when we had many fewer tools and much less insight than we do now uh, about what we were dealing with. Um, People didn't even know some of these were caused by microbes and they got out of it. Uh, but they got out of it by uh, being attentive to uh, things that worked and didn't work and, um, and being rigorous about taking those lessons to heart. And uh, I think we should do that with this epidemic as well. And I think if we do that, we'll, we'll get out of this one just like we have the others. Dr. Schooley, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out to have this conversation. You know, thank you for your really lifetime of service to the cause of human progress and science-driven discovery, and of course, for your leadership during these really difficult times. Thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and good luck. This has been Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Rees. Out of the Crisis is produced by Ben Ehrlich, edited by Jacob Tender. Music composed and performed by Cody Martin. Hosting is by Breaker. For more information on COVID-19 and ways you can help, visit helpwithcovid.com. If you have feedback or you're working on a project related to the pandemic, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at E-R-I-C-R-I-E-S. Let's solve this together.